Our Father, we would ask that as we come to familiar verses, that you would make them new to us. New worship, perhaps, new love, new understanding, new faith. We ask that you would apply your word to each one that's under the word today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Please open God's word with me to Luke 22. As we're working through the gospel today, we come to Christ's betrayal and his trial before the Jewish authorities. These are very familiar verses, and as we work through them today, devotionally, may the Holy Spirit apply them to us, giving us a greater worship, a greater love for the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll look today at how Luke shows us Jesus betrayed, verses 47 through 54, and then Jesus condemned before the Jewish authorities, verses 63 through 71. First of all, the account of Jesus betrayed, Luke 22, verses 47 through 54a. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. And then they seized him and led him away. Several aspects of Jesus' betrayal. Jesus was betrayed in the garden. Garden was the appointed place in God's sovereignty. Verse 39, the They're in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, which was his ordinary place to go. He'd been there every night this week. It was a place where he went in seclusion with his disciples. It's not the sense that Judas knew their hiding place so he could surprise them and so he could trap Jesus and turn them over to the authorities. Judas and evil and Satan are not in charge in this account. Rather, Jesus has already prophesied, I lay down my own life, John 10, 18. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. It's because Jesus knows that Judas plans to betray him, so he goes to the garden, to their appointed place that only an insider would know. He goes to the place to be sure that Judas would find him. He's going calmly. He's going to an appointment. He's not going to be late. He's going to lay down his life willingly as the sacrifice for our sins. And in fact, it was an appointment. This was his hour. John 12, 23, from before the creation of the world. Jesus is betrayed in the garden as an appointed place, but it's also a very biblically significant place because there's a comparison here between the two Adams and the two gardens. 
The first Adam faced Satan in a garden, Genesis chapter 3, in the Garden of Eden. And, but there Satan was defeated. Satan defeated Adam. And Satan brought Adam and man's allegiance and the human race under his dominion as slaves to Satan, slaves to sin, slaves to death. The Garden of Eden was where God came as the judge to sinful Adam and executed sentence upon him and put him under the curse and death because of the wages of sin. And so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned, Romans 5.12. It's in the Garden of Eden that man is driven out under the judgment of God, away from paradise, away from the tree of life. And we're back to another garden and another Adam, the second Adam, and he's facing Satan again. Satan has entered Judas we're already told that, Luke 22, 3, and now our good shepherd is facing the wolf. He's facing Satan himself, and he will not run, and he will lay down his life to die and to rescue us and to rescue his sheep. The judge is also coming to this garden. God is coming to execute his sentence. But the judge is coming to take the sentence upon himself. God is the one who's coming to take his own sentence. Wrath for what sin deserves in Jesus Christ is going to the cross to take our wrath and to take our judgment, to take our curse. The garden is a very biblically significant place as the second Adam comes. He's returning to the garden again to do battle again with Satan and this time to win and to win our victory. Jesus was betrayed in the garden Jesus was also betrayed with a kiss. Luke twenty-two forty-seven makes a point of saying it's Judas was one of the twelve, underscoring the pain of this. One of the twelve who's just been sitting at the Last Supper. One of the twelve who've seen the miracles and seen him announce the gospel and raise the dead. What privilege. To have known the intimate times of prayer and discussion and discipleship. He knew the place of Christ's prayer life. Where to find him. And he betrays him with a kiss. It's only Matthew that adds the prefix in Greek. Which shows us this is pretended. It's very pretended to be a very warm greeting. To underscore the horror of this. In this culture, slaves would kiss the feet of their masters. Students might kiss the hand of a master. But kissing the face was only for the closest of friends. And so for Judas to kiss Christ's face is the height of his despicable act. And you notice he initiates it. And again in that culture, Moses Aberek writes, in any group of teacher and disciples, the disciple was never permitted to greet his teacher first. Since this implied equality, he had to let the teacher initiate the greeting. And therefore, Judah's sign, therefore, was not only a final repudiation of his relationship with Jesus and a signal to the arresting crowd, but also a studied, prepared Insult. J.C. Ryle says this, to betray Christ at any time is the very height of wickedness, but to betray him with a kiss proves a man to have already become a child of hell. But the mercy of Christ to Judas, you notice this in verse 48, 
He calls him by name, Judas. Only Luke records this. Judas, are you going to betray the Son of Man with a kiss? What's Jesus asking? Jesus is not surprised. There's no surprise here. He's not asking for information. Remember, Judas already knows that Jesus knows that Judas, what Judas is going to do. Jesus has told him that at the Last Supper. Jesus is confronting him in mercy. He's saying, Judas, I know everything about you, and I'm warning you. Are you sure you want to go through with this? Do you realize the danger of your soul when you betray me? What mercy Christ has for Judas. Christ is betrayed in the garden. Christ is betrayed with a kiss. Christ is betrayed with the armed troops. We have the record in verse 47 and also verse 52. In Luke's account, there's not the record that we have from the other Gospels that the high priest has also sent in Roman troops. The other Gospels record that a cohort of Roman soldiers was also sent to arrest. Our cohort is anywhere from 600 to 1,000 Roman soldiers. Luke isn't denying that they're there, He's, but his focus is upon the tenants of the vineyard. It's the religious leaders that he's focusing upon, and so they are the ones that, verse 52, send in their own police. These are the officers of the temple. These are also armed guards from the high priests that guard the temple, and they've come in full force because Jesus has evaded them before. Don't think of this in your mind as a wild, drunken mob that's coming. There are hundreds and hundreds of armed soldiers, and they are armed. Jew and Gentile, under the highest authority of the Supreme Court, have come to seize Christ. And who's joining the soldiers? Verse 52. The chief priests, in plural. That's the current high priest and the previous high priest and their families, the priestly aristocracy that makes up the Supreme Court. They've all authorized this arrest already in the middle of the night. But remember, this is the night before Passover. If they become unclean, they can't celebrate Passover. But it's more important for them to murder Christ. The high priests are here. And they come with weapons, verse 52. They all have weapons. Middle of the night, coming to arrest a fleeing peasant with a small army because they've all witnessed or heard that he solved, he can quiet in a storm with a word. He can raise the dead. If they had thought about it, all their weapons would have been in vain. The armed troops, and what's the Savior's response? Verse 52b and 53. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness, his courage. You see what he's saying? Christ is implying they're a bunch of cowards. 
he's facing these hundreds of armed guards and the Supreme Court, and he says, you're a bunch of cowards. You had every opportunity to arrest me in the daytime in the temple, but it's because you're afraid of the people. You're afraid of the crowds. You had to come out in the middle of the night. You're a bunch of cowards. He's also implying there are a bunch of thugs. You're doing this illegally. If I were truly guilty, you had every opportunity to arrest me daily in the temple. But you have to come out in the middle of the night. It shows that this is not legal at all. And he's saying to the representatives of the Supreme Court, you know this is illegal. You know it. By Jewish law, an arrest could not be at night. There had to be a formal indictment before an arrest warrant could be issued. There had to be a court hearing of evidence before a person could be arrested, only if there's sufficient evidence. It should have been Judas appearing in court in advance of an arrest to present evidence, and none of this was done. And an arrest could never have been through the use of a traitor or an informer. It could not be through one of close companion or relative or friend. The person responsible for an arrest was forbidden by law to take a bribe. He could not be an accomplice. All of this was done. The religious leaders paid Judas, one of the disciples, to betray Christ. Any of these violations of laws for an arrest should have resulted in immediate acquittal of Jesus, even if there were no further mistakes in the trial, which there were plenty Is this a picture of evils in charge? Are we in despair and enraged? We see their hatred, certainly, to get this man, Jesus, violating their own laws to do so. But what a contrast that Christ, in strength and full control, goes forth with all knowledge to the place where Judas would find him. There'd be nothing taking him by surprise. He knows that all is being fulfilled according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. He's no helpless victim. In fact, he rebukes them. And he tells them, this is your hour. This is the hour of darkness, but you're only fulfilling the plan of God. And I will go with you because I will obey my Father to accomplish salvation. Jesus was arrested with the armed troops, and we see the Savior's response. We also see the Savior's compassion, and this is something unique here that Luke records, verses 50 and 51. One of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this, and he touched his ear, And healed him. The Apostle John tells us it was Peter that did it. At first it seems commendable. What zeal to fight and protect the Savior. But it was rash. It was in the flesh. And it was to overturn the plan of redemption. Satan is using Peter here to bring about a possible offense. Wouldn't the Sanhedrin love that? (laughs) That there finally would be an offense against Christ. Reminds us that acceptable worship of God, acceptable obedience of God is never measured according to our zeal. 
It's never measured according to our feelings. It's never measured according to our emotions or sincerity or the best of motives. It's not measured by our best of intentions and that we meant well or the effort or the cost that's put into it. No, obedience and worship must be measured by the will of God, by the word of God. And how does Christ respond to Peter? Verse 51. It's somewhat difficult to translate. It can be, as the ESV has it, no more of this. Or it can be more passive. Let them have their way. In other words, don't show resistance. Christ is, in either way, he's saying to Peter, I am to be led as a lamb to the slaughter. This is not the time for you to defend me. I would have tens of thousands of angels to call if I needed them. You don't understand. I'm going to lay down my life to die. No more of this. Let evil have its way. And he willingly lays down his life. Christ is in charge. And then the detail that only Luke records, verse 51, Christ's compassion to heal his enemy. (laughs) He didn't just walk away. Christ healed the man. Maybe it's Luke the doctor picking up that detail and picks up the detail that was his right ear, he says. Only Luke records this. Why? Why record that Jesus is doing good even to his enemy on his way to his death? It's Christ's last healing miracle. What's happening here in the garden? Jesus is not arrested. To use that word would imply that anything here is being done legal or legitimate. This is a band of thugs. It's a kidnapping. It's a seizure. And Jesus is willingly letting it happen. He's stronger than all of this crowd. He sees through Judas' hypocrisy. He knows Satan's plan. But to fulfill scripture, he lays down his life. Christ is not seized because he's weak. It's not like the the title of the children's book, terrible title. Jesus is in trouble. He's not in trouble. It's the irony that he was seized, not because he was weak. He's seized because he's strong. He sees because he's letting this happen willingly to accomplish our salvation. Jesus betrayed. And then Luke records Jesus condemned, verses 63 through 71. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you're the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you won't believe. And if I ask you, you won't answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated on the right hand of the power of God. 
So they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said, you say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? We heard it from ourselves, from his own lips. The scene has moved now from Jesus' seizure in the garden to the Jewish trial before the Sanhedrin, which is the Supreme Court. And you notice verse 66 is saying, when day comes. Luke doesn't record what happens in the Jewish trial during the night. You can come to the other Gospels for that. But we know by comparing the, the Gospels, and Jesus is brought before two courts. He's brought before Jewish courts, and he's brought before the Gentile, the Roman courts. And in each of these Roman and Jewish courts, he has three subcourts or hearings. So Jesus has six trials this night. And that's after a night of no sleep and weeping for exhaustion in the garden of Gethsemane and being whipped. It's only John that records that Jewish trial had three stages. Jesus was first brought to Annas, the previous high priest, and then he was brought to Caiaphas during the night. And then now, when day breaks, he's brought back to Caiaphas. There's two times that he's before Caiaphas. It's only John It's only Luke that will record the three stages of the Gentile courts, and that's what we'll look at next time. Jesus is brought before Pilate, and then he goes to Herod, and then he goes back to Pilate. Six grand hearings, or six trials. Luke 22.54 is telling us that it was during the Jewish trial at night before Caiaphas that Peter disowned Christ, but Luke doesn't give us any details of that Jewish trial. Now verse 66 comes in the morning. So Luke is picking up his account with Jesus before Caiaphas now the second time at daybreak. This is now the third Jewish examination when day came. It's important that he puts that in there when when day breaks because now it's daytime because it was against the law for the Supreme Court to meet at night. So why are they being summoned at daybreak? What's the hurry? Well, and they're, because they're they're trying to compare their schedule with Pilate's schedule. And Pilate only holds court from six in the morning to about 10. And then he concludes business for the day. So they have four hours to get this accomplished. John 19.14 tells us that the high priest, according to the high priest's calendar this year, this was the day of Passover the day that they celebrated God, the Redeemer, who delivered his people from Egypt by the shedding of blood. And today at noon, when the sun now begins to set, they will begin slaughtering the lambs for Passover this day. And so their rush is that they have to have this whole affair over with by 10 a.m. Because then they have to go back to the temple and start slaughtering the lambs for Passover. The irony couldn't be more powerful. What's driving the speed of this trial that they have to get Jesus before Pilate, before 10 a.m.? Because they have to go slaughter the lambs for Passover. But in doing so, they're slaughtering the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb. The irony is just so powerful. So Luke is intentionally saying when day came, the Supreme Court is now meeting to make it look legal to what they've already established through the whole night, illegally, to give some appearance of a conclusion 
of guilt. This is mock justice. They're just trying to put order on the verdict that they've already reached to condemn him in order that they might take him to Pilate to be executed. The travesty of Christ's Jewish trial. The travesty is because of who he's, the members of the the court are. It's Caiaphas, verse 54, the ruling high priest. He's the providing, presiding judge over the Supreme Court. He's not the real high priest. That's still Annas, who's still alive. High priests were, by God's word, to be high priests for life. But Rome has put Caiaphas in as a political appointment, and he's held this office for 18 years, the longest high priest in 100 years to do so, and he's had 10 years to work with Pilate, conniving to their mutual ends. Caiaphas is very evil, he's very sly, he's very rude. During the night, they had a, a grand jury to try to determine sentence that they could recommend to bring to Pilate. Any legal accusation to Pilate had to come from the high priest, and so... They've been doing that all night with Caiaphas in charge of the whole thing. And the Supreme Court, verse 66, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, 70 members to this Supreme Court, plus the high priest, total of 71. This is an institution that's about 200 years old. And they've been doing this all night as trying to find a way to get rid of Christ, the religious leaders, the tenants of the vineyard. They will not have the son of the owner come. They intend to reject the stone which God will make the cornerstone. The travesty because of who the court members were, but the travesty also because of what the court members were doing. Verses 67 to 71 Travesty, first of all, in verse 63, the travesty in Christ's treatment. They're beating him. He hasn't even been found guilty yet. It's against the law to beat the accused before or while they're awaiting trial. But Jesus endures this in silence because he is the suffering servant of Isaiah. He's showing us also an example how to suffer unjustly. He left us an example, 1 Peter 2.21, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. He knew that God was in charge of this. He was willingly laying down his life. So he endured in silence those beatings which were completely illegal. And the travesty of his justice. You can't expect any truth, any fairness to come from this court. They've already determined that a man should die. So you see it in verses 67 and 68. They ask Jesus if he's the Messiah. Well, Jesus knows what they mean by Messiah. Define your terms. And, and Jesus knows that his concept and the biblical concept of Messiah is not their concept of Messiah. So how are you going to answer this as a yes or no question? Verse 67, he says, well, you wouldn't believe the truth if I told you. 
And you have not answered my questions anyway. Verse 68. And now what does Jesus say in verse 69? And uh, from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus is saying, now your question, am I the Messiah? Well, if you take Daniel 7 and combine that with Psalm 110, and if that's your definition of Messiah, then yes, I am Messiah. We saw last Sunday night, Pastor Jim, Daniel 7, is where Jesus takes this title, the Son of Man. The Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, and he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All peoples and nations and men of every language worshipped him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Daniel 7, and you take that with Psalm 110, verse 1, who rules at God's right hand, if that's what you mean by Messiah. The son of man who sits, will sit at the right hand of God ruling the nations, then yes, I am Messiah. To claim to be Messiah itself was not a capital of offense, but to claim that you were divine, that you were the divine Messiah, to claim that you were equality with God, and that's what he's claiming, to rule at God's right hand, for he is the son of God, he is God, and so they have to clarify. Did, what did we just hear? They couldn't believe their ears, what Jesus just admitted to. So they have to clarify. So they all said, verse 70, Are you the son of God then? Is that what you're saying? He said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it from ourselves, from his own lips. Are you, did, you, did we just hear this right, that you claim to be God? And Jesus answered, you say that I am. You've just confessed it. You don't believe it. But that's what you've said. Paraphrasing, Jesus is saying to them, you're absolutely right. What you're saying is correct. I am the son of man. I am the son of God. You're Messiah. Yes, that's who I am. And he goes on. And in fact, I'm your judge. And the day is coming that I'm going to be seated at the right hand of God and you're going to stand before me. They understood him to be claiming virtual equality with God both in position and power, and they were delighted with the statement because to them it was the height of blasphemy and gave them ample grounds for having him executed. They just checked, however, to make sure that he was claiming to be the Son of God in the fullest possible sense of the term, and finding that he was, they concluded their investigation. Now they could get him executed. Ironically, their execution of him would be but the first step in the process of translating their prisoner to his seat at the right hand of the power of God, David Gooding. Just like at his incarnation, the religious leaders knew where Messiah was to be born, Bethlehem, but they didn't go, they didn't believe it. But they knew the answer, they knew the right answer. Here they are again, they know the right answer, they know that they're hearing Jesus say, I am I am God, I am your Messiah, but they won't believe it. 
couldn't believe their good fortune. And so they all, they have all they need to condemn him for blasphemy. The other gospels tell us the height of hypocrisy is the high priest rips his robes. <clears throat> high priest was never to rip his robes except if a great sin had been committed against God in his presence. And he's acting as if now there's been a great sin committed against God that Jesus is simply saying, this is who I am. And he's jumping for joy. It's good news. I have all the evidence we need to condemn him. What a travesty. What a hypocrisy. And there's so many laws that were violated. Dr. Raymond Brown records some of the violations of their own law. By law, it was required to have a written warrant before an arrest, but Jesus was seized. And sentenced in their minds, didn't even have a written warrant at all. The law required that witnesses be the ones that arrest and bring to trial, yet no witnesses of sin. In fact, Jesus was arrested with blood money, the result of a bribe. The law was that arrests could... Um, arrest always or to be before sunset, never at night. And no capital offense, and this certainly was, or no convictions could be at night, this was. The law, it was against the law. If it was a capital punishment case, you must never initiate the hearings on the evening of before a feast, a festival, or a Sabbath day. And here they're starting and completing the whole trial, the night of Passover, the most holy feast day. The law required that witnesses always be carefully examined, especially in capital cases, and they were exhorted to tell the truth. There was no examination of witnesses. The first witnesses to speak by law were the witnesses for the defense on Christ's behalf, but there was no witnesses for him because it was in the middle of the night. And a capital case by law must begin with the reasons for listing for acquittal. It's not done. By law, the high priest was forbidden to express an opinion or to interrogate the witnesses or the accused, he was to remain perfectly silent. And when the balloting was done, he was to vote last so that his opinion never swayed anyone's vote. But Caiaphas, and they all violated these rules, and they charged Christ if he was the Son of God. The judges were never to seek to condemn the accused. There were no lawyers, there was no defense, and so the judges were always to take the side of the accused and always to seek every means for acquittal. If a judge ever displayed himself hostile, they were disbarred from trying the case, but this Supreme Court rises and slaps him and spits upon him. The accused could never be asked to incriminate himself, and yet that's their only basis to condemn Christ. The case had to be established by witnesses, never by self-incrimination. The high priest was the first to call the guilt of blasphemy in Matthew's account, and the rest of the judges agreed, but by law, the judges of lower seniority had to vote first. The high priest had to vote last. By law, in capital cases, you are never allowed a unanimous vote. There had to be at least one negative vote, but this vote was unanimous. If 37 or more members of the Sanhedrin voted for death, they were required to go home, sleep, and meditate on how to acquit the person. But their law, by their law, it would take two days to try and condemn a person to death, and they all did it within hours. By law, 
The guilty could not be sentenced the same day as the trial. The court had to be adjourned. Judges return home to consider the evidence. The court would reconvene after a full night had passed. A new vote had to be taken before the sentence was determined. They not only violate this, but they had his death sentence ready before the trial even began. They were going through the charade of having a hearing, but it was all illegal. To fulfill scripture, they hated me without a cause. Even their charge of blasphemy was, bla- was really blame- um, baseless because the law was for a charge of blasphemy had to very clearly misuse the name of God. They charged him with blasphemy, but he did not use the, misuse the name of God. Supreme Court heard this in silence. They heard this in a closed room. So they were the only ones that heard the evidence of blasphemy. Quote, quote, By law, a person could never act as a judge in a case in which he was also a witness. They're the only witnesses that Christ, quote, quote, blasphemed. And they are the judges. The point is, the Jewish judicial system of the day, if it had been followed, was the most merciful, the most careful judicial process known in the whole world. It was not barbaric. It was not inadequate. The problem was, was the sinful hearts of the men that hated Christ. Wasn't their law system? The heart is deceitful, desperately wicked. Jeremiah seventeen nine. And still no different, is it? For the unbeliever and the unsaved, they've already made up their minds to reject Christ. They don't want. They don't want Christ, and it's not because they've heard the evidence. It's not because they've heard the defense of the truth. They just reject him and condemn him never concluding from the evidence. It's rebellion. It's a heart that won't believe unless God opens their eyes and gives the heart to repent and come to Christ. What a travesty of Christ's judicial trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin. But it fulfills God's plan. Evil does not win. It's only playing to God's hand. The big stuff of life, the crucifixion, only happened according to the predetermined plan of God, Acts 2 and Acts 4. And so too all the small stuff in your life. When Christ was under oath to say whether he was Messiah or not, and he he answered, yes, I am. And by the way, you're not in charge here. And you don't win. The day is coming when I am going to come in glory. And you will stand before me. And then on that day, I will be on the right hand of the throne of God. And I will judge you. You're condemning me today. But that is only going to lead to my glorification and exaltation to the throne of God. 
So let me ask you, was this arrest and unjust trial by evil men who are in control? Is this a dark day? Is this the triumph of Satan? Or is Jesus Christ in control as our sovereign victor who with all knowledge and all power and all love laid down his life to save us? Octavius Winslow asks, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. And Mark Jones says we need to add, and the Son, the Son also freely offered himself up for love. Charnock, he that can rescue himself from the hands of men and will not may be said to die willingly even though he die violently. The Apostle Paul put it, the life we live by faith in the Son of God who loves us and gave himself up for us. point of it all is Christ willingly embraced this to accomplish our salvation. Do you know him as your Lord and Savior today? Is your heart responding in deeper worship, deeper awe of such love that he would come for the likes of us? and willingly lay down as the shepherd to lay down his life for the sheep. Shall we pray? Father, these these thoughts are too big for our small minds. How can it be that God the Son would become incarnate to willingly go to the cross and lay down his life for us? How he was abused, how he suffered in silence, not because of weakness, because of strength and such love. We've been bought with a price. We are not our own. Cause us to more willingly and lovingly offer our lives in obedience and gratitude to Christ. And now we pray that you'll draw us to the table. May we have the assurance of our Savior that our sins are forgiven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.